Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Journal of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology. On behalf of the Trainee Engagement Committee of the SNAC, this is Shobana Rajan interviewing Dr. Alana Flexman, who is the lead author of the recent article on postoperative screening with the modified National Institutes of Health Stroke Scale after Non-Cardiac Surgery, a pilot study. This was published in JNA, July 2022, Volume 34, Issue 3, pages 327 to 332. Dr. Alana Flexman is an anesthesiologist and an affiliated scientist with the Center for Health Evaluation and Outcome Sciences at St. Paul's Hospital Providence Healthcare. She's a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia. After finishing her residency at UBC, she completed a fellowship in neuroanesthesia at the University of California, San Francisco. She is the president-elect for the Society for Neuroscience and Anesthesiology and Critical Care and the past chair of the neuroanesthesia section of the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society. She's also the associate editor at the Journal of Neurosurgical Anesthesiology. Dr. Flexman's research program focuses on screening and early identification of patients with stroke after both cardiac and non-cardiac surgery, as well as how to predict and optimize outcome after perioperative stroke and applying best evidence to optimize brain health. So welcome, Dr. Flexman. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you, Dr. Rajan. It's really exciting to be here. And thanks for inviting me to speak about the study. Sure. So what we know so far is that the severity of strokes can be measured by the NIHSS stroke scale. But what we're going to learn that is new from this article is that if there is a way to measure stroke that occurs in the perioperative period, and if there is, would it be the same, similar, or vastly different from the standard NIHSS stroke scale? So our first question to you is, what is the common incidence of perioperative stroke and when and how does it commonly present? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so perioperative stroke, if you took all patients having surgery, it's not really very common. So it's only about 0.1% of all patients having surgery. But clearly when you, when you look at certain populations of patients that are high risk, it goes up a lot. So if you look at patients, for example, who've had a stroke before, the risk is, is almost as high as 3% after surgery. And so in that case, um, you would, it would be something you'd want to watch out for, particularly because of um, there's such a detrimental effect on patients. So even though it's uncommon, it's something that a, we could intervene on with potentially therapeutic treatment and also that, um, to, um, prevent some severe lifelong consequences for the patient. So that's why screening, screening could be a very important part of this. Sure. Now, is a perioperative stroke more difficult to diagnose, and does it cause worse outcomes if it happens? Yes, absolutely. That's also a really good point to make about perioperative stroke. Um, we know just from some case series and the literature um, that patients who present with a stroke after surgery or upon waking up from surgery, um, we know that we have trouble diagnosing those patients and recognizing it for a, a, probably a whole bunch of reasons. But one of them being that the patient's still, you know, potentially quite sleepy from surgery. Um, and it's hard to distinguish sometimes whether that's just a residual effect from the anesthesia or whether that's actually a stroke that the patients had. 
And often by the time we we figure out that something really doesn't seem right and then do the imaging, it might be um, too late to do an intervention. Um, so that's why understanding what the patient's baseline status is and, you know, looking at them, um, you know, with a more formal assessment might be useful for some patients who are high risk. Um, it's also there's interference related to the surgery. So for example, if a patient, you know, has had a bypass surgery where they've taken a vein graft from the leg, and then, you know, we try to do a, a motor assessment or sensory assessment of the leg, it might appear like abnormal, even though it's just related to the surgery. So that's why some of these, these stroke skills that are used very commonly outside of the surgical setting to assess stroke, um, you know, they may not be, they may be more difficult to apply in our patients, particularly early after surgery. You do make a very good uh, point. And I think uh, perioperative stroke could be a pretty confusing picture to us as physicians for these reasons. Um, can you describe the modified NIHSS scoring system for us? How is it different from the regular scoring system? Yeah, sure. Um, so the so the the full NIH stroke scale is a is a very commonly used one by our neurology colleagues, and and they use it um, both to look at screening to for diagnosis, but it's also used for prognostication. So like it's a, it's a good measure of stroke severity. Um, the higher the score, the, the worse the severity. Um, and, but it is a fairly long assessment and clearly, you know, if, if a neurologist who's trained to do this, this detailed uh, neurologic assessment, they, they feel quite comfortable doing that. But for, you know, us who are not neurologists and we're in a different setting um, where we might need to be more efficient and we don't, it's, it's not the focus. Um, we need something that's simpler and shorter. So the modified NIH short scale is, is a shorter version. So what they did is they omitted a few of the sections that specifically they found were just, they were, um, they didn't, change the predictive ability um, that much. So they were able to simplify it, but have it still be quite valid. So, the, and that was outside of the surgical setting. And so um, some of our colleagues um, did, a, did a systematic review um, where they looked at the stroke scale, different options for screening, and they had recommended using the modified NIHSS, probably because it's relatively simple. Um, and because it had been used in some surgical populations in other studies, um, but it hadn't been formally validated in our population. So looking at it in great detail about how the patients were able to do it, um, whether they were able to complete it and whether they had you know, a lot of changes in their score that were not related to strokes symptoms specifically. Sure. And now, can you tell us something about your study? What were your primary objectives and what were the primary and secondary outcomes? Sure, absolutely. Um, so this was more of a feasibility study. So it, it was not meant to look at whether this scale was able to predict or diagnose a stroke because we obviously with such an uncommon outcome, we, we uh, would have had to enroll a large number of patients. But instead, um, as a sort of first step, we thought it would be useful just to apply the, the scale um, formally to patients having non-cardiac surgery and then see um, whether this this the assessment score changed from baseline so that we took a baseline assessment before the surgery. And then we did a, re a repeated assessment 
right after they came out of the anesthesia and then also day one and day two after surgery. And, um, and we looked at what the change in score was from their baseline, when that occurred, whether the patients were able to complete this, the whole assessment. Um, and, and we got some, some basic feedback from the patients about whether they thought it was reasonable to do that after having surgery. Um, and so what we found was that, um, there are changes in the modified NIHSS um, score with patients from their baseline after surgery, but it was primarily seen on the first assessment, which was the one done within hours of the patient waking up from the anesthesia and surgery. So it, um, there are clearly um, changes that occur that none of these patients had a stroke as far as we know. So um, it just shows that the, sometimes you can detect change that is not necessarily related to a stroke particularly early after surgery. And that that can be um, probably, it, it confirms what we thought, which is that it's a bit confusing to diagnose stroke symptoms after surgery, particularly early on. Um, and we, as a secondary thing, we had assessed the patient's cognitive ability prior to the surgery with a MOCA, and we correlated the MOCA score with their change. And what we found was it was the patients who had mild cognitive impairment who actually had the most change in their score, which again, just shows that that population is probably the most vulnerable <clears throat> and they, um, they might have the most difficulty um, completing, you know, getting through the, the assessment and then may have changes there that are not actually reflecting stroke symptoms. Sure. Uh, you mentioned that this uh, scoring system is uh, modified and somewhat shortened, making it suitable for the perioperative period. Um, how, what do you think about the accuracy of the scale uh, because of these reasons that it is shorter? Is it as sensitive? Is it specific in this situation? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a good question. I think it's not so much that it's shorter. I think it's actually, you know, for an anesthesiologist, it's not, it's not that short because it actually looks through um, a number of different domains. So it's, you know, sensory and motor on both sides. It's, you know, gaze and neglect and um, level of consciousness and orientation. So it, it takes, it's not a long assessment. It takes about three or four minutes, but it's not a, it's not a super quick one. Um, and so in that sense, I don't think it's that it's shorter. I think that it's that there are a lot of aspects of this neurologic assessment that could be influenced by anesthesia. So for example, like if a patient is really drowsy from their medication or, or from residual anesthetic, you know, they may not be fully alert, they may not be fully oriented to your questions. Um, we did see some patients who had some motor change that was probably related to pain or just their ability to like their ability to cooperate with this assessment rather than actually being a, a focal deficit. Um, and so it, it's interesting, you definitely see that there's an interaction with the anesthetic and surgery effects on the score. And in fact, I I think that it may even be useful to hone in on what parts of it are the most reliable rather than, and even shortening it further. So we don't pick up as much noise when the patient's emerging from anesthesia. Cause if, for example, drowsiness is a, is a, if that was part of the assessment, then a lot of patients would get that criteria, but it, it's very nonspecific. And so, um, you know, I think that's, I think we're applying a score that 
we're trying to find the best scoring system or screening system that can be used on our specific patients, even though it's been validated outside of our population. Sure. Yeah. So could you tell us something about the results of your study and the clinical significance of these results? Sure. Um, yeah. So as I said, the um, we did find changes in score that were significant from baseline, um, and it was primarily on the first um, the first assessment. So that was done one to four hours after the surgery, or after they woke up from the surgery, and so it definitely showed that there was that we were able to detect change. Um, that wasn't necessarily due to a stroke. We did not have any patients diagnosed with stroke throughout the study. You know, we can't exclude that there was a, a subclinical or a covert stroke, but as far as we know, there was no overt stroke. Um, and in that case, it just shows that the change in score, um, you know, likely occurred for other reasons rather than stroke. Um, and it was the patients who were, had some cognitive impairment um, on the on the plus side, we did find that patients were very um, cooperative and um, happy with the assessment. So um, it seemed very practical. They didn't the um, it didn't take very long. Um, it took a little bit longer during the first assessment because they were most of them were kind of sleepy, but in general it was pretty practical and feasible. Um, so that um, you know, I think that shows us that there's, it's possible to do it, but I think it highlights that there's some limitations. So with respect to clinical apl applications of this, I think this is a very preliminary study. It's just a feasibility study that we were um, hoping to inform a larger study that we could use in our population. So I don't think this should change anybody's practice at the moment, but simply to be aware that, you know, if we, if we are doing some assessments, it is possible that patients will um, can have symptoms that may mimic having a stroke that are not necessarily a stroke. And we can't really tell the difference for sure unless we, you know, we do further testing and imaging. Sure. And I think it might be a good idea to uh, use this testing in patients who are already at high risk for perioperative stroke in the yeah. immediate postoperative period. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what uh, would be the strengths and limitations of your study? Yeah, I think um, I think the strengths of the study, I think it's um, it does provide one of the first studies that really looked at in a formal way how we ap apply the scale into the surgical population. And I think, um, and, you know, so we were able to do it in a very methodical way and even look at some predictors of who might be more likely to have changes that are um, not related to stroke. Um, I think those are all, you know, I think this is sort of an interesting hypothesis generating type of study. I think obviously the limitations are, it was a relatively small number of patients. So it was only 25 patients having a, a whole variety of different surgery, not cardiac, but a whole different types of surgery. Some of them had epidurals, some of them had, um, had different modes of pain management. So, um, you know, it was very practical in the sense that we wanted to capture a broad spectrum, but it also, you know, we may not have been able to capture in detail, like some of the subtle changes that can occur, like with having an epidural and then having a, having to do an assessment, um, is it going to be likely potentially be a little bit more difficult? Um, so I think, you know, I think this is just a first step. I think this showed us, um, in an interesting way that, 
you know, this was a possible way to go ahead with doing some screening. As you said, I think your point about this is really going to be for high-risk patients where I don't think necessarily we should be screening everybody with this tool all the time. But we're actually now looking into um, possibly honing in a bit more on uh, an even simpler way of assessment and using um, screening tools that are more for large vessel occlusion strokes, because those are the ones we really want to get um, potentially diagnosed quicker so that we can then go and um, intervene on them with a thrombectomy in the future. So that's kind of, this I think helps guide us towards those additional studies. Sure, thank you so much. And I think these are all excellent developments in the field of, of perioperative brain, brain health. Thank you for discussing your study with us and I'm sure the readers would enjoy listening to this podcast. Yeah. Is, is there anything else you would like to share or any take home messages? Yeah, no, not at all. And I appreciate the chance to talk about our study. Um, and I agree, these are these are kind of the key questions for perioperative brain health is how do we, how can we really change outcome and diagnose our patients as quickly as possible with a stroke if they do have one so that we can offer treatment that can improve their outcome. So yeah, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. There's other people doing good work in this area as well. And um, I look forward to seeing what the future holds with this. I think we're just starting out, so... Thanks for having me. Thank you so much again.